You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Audible and Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. And for the next couple weeks, you'll hear me ask you to complete a short survey that will help us to keep SpyCast free. It will take less than five minutes of your time and is completely anonymous. What it helps us to do is understand demographic data and listener habits so that you don't end up getting ads for things like denture cream or life alert, since most of you can successfully get up after a fall. All you need to do is go to podcast.study. No.coms or anything, just type podcast.study into your browser and go there. And here's another incentive. The faster we get a good sample set of surveys, the faster I stop talking about this each podcast. So make this happen, people. Podcast.study, less than five minutes, completely anonymous and helpful to SpyCast. Now let's meet our guest. We're joined today by Scott Miller, who is a former correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, where he spent nearly two decades in Asia and Europe, reporting from more than 25 countries. He's the author of two books. The first, The President and the Assassin, McKinley, Terror, and Empire at the Dawn of the American Century, was a Newsweek must-read summer selection. His newest book is Agent 110, an American spymaster in the German resistance in World War II. And this just came out everywhere great books are sold, including the Spy Museum retail store. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me. So the book itself is nominally about Alan Dulles, who a lot of our listeners will have heard of and probably know a lot about. But in many ways, Dulles himself serves as an entry point to what eventually, to me, is kind of the theme of this book, which is the members of the German elite and military officers who end up resisting Hitler. And my first question focuses, whenever I have an author, I want to focus on, especially with dealing in intelligence situations, on how do you get access to some of this information? Because in this case, many of these people didn't survive. You know, as you probably know, Hitler kills himself. So all the plots against Hitler didn't go very well. So how do we know what they were doing? How good is a documentary record? How do you write a book that is not focused as much as Dulles as others? Is a lot more about the Germans. That is a great question. And it's sort of, it's a constant problem for somebody like me. Fortunately, some key figures did survive. But you kind of have to be on guard because you're looking at things through the prism of their biases. Um, one of the characters in the book, um, Hans Bernd Gesavius, who was an Abwehr agent and was working with Dulles, 
He, for example, talks about his meeting with um, Klaus von Stauffenberg, who was the kind of the leader of the July 20, 1944 plot against uh, Hitler, the Valkyrie. Mm. Tom Cruise and Valkyrie. Just Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah. And Tom Cruise <laughs> doesn't look dissimilar. I know they look from... really, it's a really good choice yeah. for casting. Um, Sorry, go ahead. No, um, but uh, Gazavius describes their first meeting, and Gazavius had reasons not to like Stauffenberg for all kinds of things that we could get into, but he describes Stauffenberg in pretty negative terms. Um, they're in this basement a few days before the attack, and he says Stauffenberg is kind of, he's rude to the woman host, and they get in a big argument about all kinds of things, and he says Stauffenberg really kind of wants to hand Germany over to the Soviets after the war. And so there's those sorts of biases that a researcher has to contend with, um, which is you know, always a cautionary. There's a lot of these things, if they come out after the war, not only are they trying to erase their Nazi past, but they're written in this broader prism of the Cold War, mm -hmm. where it's our, our Germans are good, their Germans are bad. You know, the idea that those that have come to the West are the, the good Germans, as we'll talk about exactly. down the road. And so, I mean, it's a problem with diplomatic history is a lot of the books about the Nazis and whether they were really, you know, everybody was a Nazi or the East German army was a we're all written with this Cold War prism in mind. And mm -hmm. so kind of separating the wheat from the chaff is incredibly difficult. That, that is really difficult. I mean, fortunately, you know, some people did survive. I mean, one of my favorite survivor stories, if I can tell that one, is um, a guy named um, Fabian von Schlabrendorf. And he was one Which of This is two the most German name in the history of German <sighs> It names. is a oh, mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> and he was one of two officers who tried to blow up Hitler's plane. I think it was March 1943. And you know, Hitler had the most amazing ability to avoid assassination and coup. I mean, it is incredible. Anyway, that uh, the bomb that they placed aboard Hitler's aircraft didn't go off and Hitler survived and nobody could, you know, it was a great bomb and it just didn't go off. Um, but Schlabrendorf was actually taken into custody after the um, Valkyrie operation in July um, 1944. And he was actually on trial where he was certain to be hanged. And the judge has his documents in his hand and an American air raid materializes out of nowhere drops a bomb, it hits the courthouse, a beam falls on the judge's head, kills him, and he still has Schlabrendorf's documents in his hand, and the Germans don't know quite what to do with them. They actually kind of stuck to legal processes in a weird way a lot of times. And so Schlabrendorf sort of bounced around various prisons and concentration camps and ended up uh, surviving the war and was actually pulled out of a PMW camp by one of Dulles's men. So there are a few, right. um, but for most, the war ended very badly. The setting for the book is actually Switzerland. And for those that don't associate Switzerland with World War II, there's a reason for it. It's a neutral country. It's not one of the, one of the, the fighting forces. Um, but Switzerland's such a great setting for a book on spies. Can you talk a little bit about why this is like the nest of espionage? I mean, later on in the Cold War to be Berlin or Vienna, Switzerland really is center mass for espionage the, the, the fact that the book took place largely in Switzerland really attracted me to it. I was a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Germany for a long time, and I've always been a ski bum wannabe. <laughs> and every weekend, we'd go down to Switzerland, and that country has always really sort of um, captivated me. But for years before World War II, spies from all over the world, um, Russia, although they weren't supposed to be there, China, all the European countries, Japan, sort of congregated in Switzerland. It was a neutral country. 
uh, um, and everybody kind of found a home there. But it was very sort of, it was, I kind of describe it as a bit of a surreal scene because the spies, they kind of knew each other. It was, they were mostly congregated in Bern where they all had some sort of diplomatic cover of one sort. Um, Dulles, for example, was the special assistant to the head of the American mission when really he was part of the OSS. Right. And the State Department did not like people using diplomatic cover, but that's the way it is. So they all kind of knew each other. Um, it just made for this weird existence of kind of getting along, and there wasn't a lot of of um, danger that I think they felt yeah. because Switzerland, everybody wanted to have good relations with Switzerland. Um, the Germans had very close trading ties with Switzerland, and the Americans wanted to have, there were American pilots who were down there. And so it was really sort of a place where you really didn't go and kill somebody else's spies because the Germans, or the Swiss rather, had a very good intelligence service on their, of their own. And if somebody got killed, they would find out who did it. Yeah. And then there would be repercussions um, up and down the line. So it was kind of a weird, safe haven. And of course, you could listen to German radio broadcasts, read German papers. Um, but, you know, you're sitting there, as I describe in the book, in a cafe, you know, having a nice drink, and right across the Rhine, or just on the end, some other valley, you know, there's people that are fighting and right. dying in, in horrific ways. It was a, it must have been a weird, weird place. Dulles, you've mentioned already, seems to be the perfect guy for this kind of a posting. I mean, this is, this is the most important, I mean, London was the most important OSS, but as far as being in the middle of the war, it doesn't get more important than this. Was the contacts that Dulles had, his experiences in World War One, doing espionage, natural personality. But I thought was interesting was putting him here was a great way for Bill Donovan to get Dulles as far away from him as he possibly could. Dulles was, in some ways, he was a brilliant choice. In other ways, he was sort of an unlikely one. He had been in the State Department. He had made money on Wall Street at Sullivan and Cromwell. And he had a, just a little bit. He'd kind of dipped his toe in espionage during World War I, as you mentioned. But he was really a greenhorn when they, when they sent him there. His German was not great, considering <laughs> he'd lived in Switzerland. Um, you know, even towards the end of the war, he was still relying on people to help him translate, you know, interviews. Um, so it was, it was a bit sort of dodgy for him. Um, but he, I think, in the end, he was a good he was a good choice. He was the sort of person who kind of flew at thirty thousand feet. Um, he wasn't sort of your average spy. He he saw geopolitics and he was very ambitious. He had two relatives who had been secretaries of state, and I think he kind of hungered for a role for himself like that someday. And so he was never somebody who was going to be content just filing reports mm -hmm. for some analyst of Washington to pour over. He wanted be the guy making history and you know he was you know in baseball terms swinging for the fences <laughs> the, the the broader plot of the book or i was use the word plot i'm gonna use the word plot again it seems to be centered around plots to kill hitler and in many ways killing hitler seems like a no-brainer i mean there's there's not a lot of downside to that but there was actually some issue when it was just killing hitler uh, a lot of people needed to understand what that meant you know do you kill hitler and automatically get peace it doesn't do you much good if you kill Hitler and then Garibalds or somebody else steps in. And so the U.S. really needed to know if it was going to make a difference, if there were people there that were willing to do it. And then, of course, the Soviet issue. Does killing Hitler provide you with a ally potentially in the future? Or does somebody pro-Soviet, like you already mentioned, with Stauffenberg come into play? 
you'll talk a little bit about the hesitation because you know everyone talks about if you went back in time would you kill hitler well it's not as cut and dry as people may think well you're absolutely right and particularly early in the war there was a lot of a lot of the people in the resistance had deep religious convictions and particularly in one of the two major resistance groups that I talk about, the Kreisau Circle. Um, they were kind of a group of, they were kind of very eclectic and liberal, and they debated a lot of just about the ethics and the morals of assassinating anybody, and whether it was Hitler or not, and that kind of tied them up in knots. And then there was also sort of the logical, the larger practical question of, if you kill Hitler, how is the German public gonna react? Um, you know, Germans, particularly by the end of the war, were dissatisfied with Hitler, and a lot of people didn't like him, but still murdering the leader of your country during wartime, in when your sons or father are out on the battlefield, um, could be seen as a, as a treasonous action. And so they were worried that even if they did kill him, succeeded in killing him, how would the German people react? Right. And there was a lot of concern that maybe just a civil war w would ensue that would leave Germany much worse off than than the war that they were trying to get out of. Well, and how would the German military react? Because I think what people may not understand is, especially anybody who's been in the military in the United States or working for the government is, we all take oaths to the Constitution, right? Preserve, protect, and defend. In Nazi Germany, they didn't take oaths to Germany or to the Constitution of Germany. They took personal oaths to Hitler himself. Yep. And this may not mean a lot to a lot of people, but we're talking about German soldiers here yep. who take oaths very, very seriously. Yep. And it was just, it was kind of a measure of your manhood. Um, you know, to turn your back on that oath was, would have been seen as something really terrible. And, you know, once again, these officers are leading men on the battlefield. And so what are you saying about, uh, you know, are you turning your back on your troops if you you turn on Hitler. A lot of the officers, particularly on the Eastern Front, it's interesting, a lot of sort of the early resistance members in the military were on the Eastern Front, and they had seen sort of the worst mm -hmm. accesses, uh, uh, the Einsatzgruppen, which were sort of these death squads. And this is kind of before, just as Germany was getting the concentration camps up and running. But, you know, they would just go into villages in Poland and, and Russia and round up all the Jews, and not just Jews, but anybody who, you know, uh, communists, anybody, and dig a trench and shoot them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of officers saw this, and, you know, we have to distinguish between different, there's different people. And that really revolted a lot of officers uh, um, and turned quite a few against Hitler. You actually highlight several times in the book about where there were opportune times for the military rising up against Hitler. And several of them were foiled in different ways. I mean, one of them is interesting is there's a lot of talk even today about the agreement at Munich in 1938. The idea that Neville Chamberlain brings peace in our time. Everyone's, oh, he's a great appeaser. And it, that word still pops up. And people talk about the Iran deal that just passes the neck Munich. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that a lot of the plotters, the people who are against Hitler, were hoping that the British would, would not be an appeaser there because then Hitler would look like the aggressor against Czechoslovakia and they could strike then. Mm -hmm. That that to me, I, I, not, I hadn't seen that before. That to me was really interesting to see. So I, I, you know, I know a lot of the history behind the British weren't ready to fight yet and they, all this, but the whole idea that the German resistance was like, damn it, you know, the British kind of foiled us in our plot. And that was one of the things I didn't know about either. You know, I had, you know, of course, seen the Valkyrie movie and yeah. read about 
uh, that. But what I didn't know, it was really the same sort of core of people that, that carried out the, the, the Valkyrie operation had been at it on several occasions leading back to 1938, as you, as you suggest. And Ludwig Beck, who was, um, had been the chief of staff of the German army, he had resigned his post because he disagreed with Hitler in 1938 and he was one of these early leaders you know kind of uh, leading up to Munich and the resistance was desperately communicating through back channels to the British government you know do not do a deal with Hitler because we are ready we are going to have a coup they didn't want to kill him at Mm -hmm. this point for the reasons that we already discussed but we can turn him out and we can do this whole thing but you cannot do a deal with Hitler and of course Churchill wasn't having uh, there's a before Churchill, of course, but Chamberlain uh, um, just wasn't having it. Yeah. You, you also talk about after Stalingrad, after the pretty significant German defeat at Stalingrad, when the German army is limping its way back mm-hmm. toward Berlin. This was another potential opportune time when the army would have been much more open to revolting against Hitler. That was kind of what I would say was a second great opportunity. And just to kind of put in parentheses for a moment, there were other people who were plotting against Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, there were student groups and individuals, but kind of on the, of this major group of officers, as you say, the failure of Stalingrad, and they could see that it was not going to work. And they had lined up a couple of key German officers on the Eastern Front um, when the um, German Sixth Army surrendered. That was supposed to trigger a whole chain of events where some of the key German officers on the Eastern Front would no longer obey Hitler, and they would launch their coup. Um, in this case, a couple of key officers said nah, they they kind of dithered at mm-hmm. the critical moment, and they didn't turn on Hitler, and the coup uh, fell apart, which, you know, and it was really close. that uh, They could have got yeah. rid of him right there um, in 1942. We'll continue this line of questioning in one moment, but first let me tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, spelled MVMT but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. The story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing, and as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this, stay in school, kids. But tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crowd-funded fashion brand in 2013. Through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media amassing 1.5 million followers. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous in both men and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. The great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. This movement watches started just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. 
look, the watch I have is a really clean design. And, and seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, whoa, where'd that come from? So now's the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. One of the key moments uh, that prevents a lot of possible ways to get rid of Hitler is actually an American mistake, you could argue, in, in hindsight and, and counterfactual. It may have been the need at the time, but the idea that Germany needed to surrender unconditionally seemed to put a real crimp in the ability of any of these coup plotters to do anything about it. Because why try to kick out Hitler if you're screwed anyway, right? If, if Germany is yep. going to be subjugated like it was after World War One and the harsh treatment at the Treaty of Versailles, why even try? You know, it's not going to matter. Yep. yep. I mean, you're absolutely right. What this unconditional surrender policy um, was something that Roosevelt announced in early 1943 in Casablanca. And he hadn't really discussed it in detail with Churchill. He just kind of popped it on him. And Churchill was kind of in agreement, but not really. And there were a lot of people who were opposed to that idea, um, partly, in fact, largely because it kind of put the Germans back to the wall. And it was a huge propaganda tool for Goebbels and others who said, you know, the, the Americans are going to destroy us. We have no alternative, but we got to fight as long as we can. I mean, Goebbels sort of likened it to the Civil War when the right. North came in and leveled the South. Um, and why Roosevelt did that remains, it's a, it's a subject of, it makes for a very good historical debate, let's put it that way. Um, some people think that he just didn't like the Germans, and he had spent a lot of time in Germany as uh, when he was growing up and spoke some German. But he had also, I think he was undersecretary of the Navy mm -hmm. um, at the end of World War I, and he was in Paris during the peace talks. And he'd seen how difficult those were because in World War I, Germany wasn't really defeated on the battlefield. Right. It was kind of the, the home front collapsed. And Roosevelt kind of felt like, you know, if, if we had really defeated them entirely, maybe World War II wouldn't have happened to begin with. The Germans always felt like we have to go back and set this horrible, um, you know, the horrible events after World War I right. And also, you know, Roosevelt had to contend a lot in the walk up to World War II. There was a very strong isolationist movement in the country. And, you know, that went away after Pearl Harbor. But I think that kind of stuck in his mentality mm -hmm. of we need a really solid objective to keep the American people focused. Right. And if he said, you know, okay, we're gonna go fight up to this point, and then we'll talk to them. You know, that's, that, he felt like that that would sort of just muddy the waters in terms of keeping the war and the sacrifices that the American people had to make, um, you know, to keep everybody on, on the same page. Well, one thing it does though, is it potentially pushes the Germans into the hands of the Soviets because if the Soviets are offering a better deal, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot, you talk about German officer POWs, those in like, let's say, you know, we can enter like staff officer rank, you know, colonels and below, might actually think the Soviets were a good alternative because they, you know, they want a career in the German army when the war is over. And if all of a sudden the United States, the British and the French rush in and kick everybody out of power, mm -hmm. then their dreams of being a Prussian general one day yeah. go up in smoke. 
because there was, you know, the Russians, uh, the Soviets captured massive numbers of German troops. And as you say, there was kind of this dream that like, hey, there's a German army in waiting here. You know, all they have to do is free us. Yeah. Um, so after Stalingrad was kind of when this idea took place, it was the, basically the German name for it translated as the Free German Committee. And the Soviets took um, a fair number of more senior German officers and took them to POW camps and really looked after them really well in a way that very few other POWs enjoyed in the Soviet Union. And they began sort of producing, um, I guess you would call it psychological warfare material, but there was a lot of concern in the U.S. that they were really being trained almost as a substitute government right. to be installed in Germany as soon as it collapsed and the Soviets would be the first ones in there. They'd be able to put up a, a communist government. And in fact, at the end of the war when Germany was being divided, a lot of those Germans who had been captured found their way into East Germany into various government posts. It wasn't this ready-made government that the Soviets installed, but a lot of them did find their way into the East German government. I think what's really interesting for those that have seen Valkyrie, one thing they don't tell you in that movie is that more than likely Stauffenberg would have sided with the Soviets over the Americans. He certainly had tendencies to move in that direction. As, you know, a lot of hmm. German officers did. Um, you know, it's, it was interesting reading about the opinions of different leading Nazis. And there was a lot who just kind of viewed the West as being decadent. Yeah. Um, and don't forget that Germany and the Soviet Union during the 20s, they did a lot together. Um, they both felt that they had been screwed yeah. at the Treaty of Versailles. And one thing I didn't know about until I was doing the research in the book was like the Luftwaffe um, officers were being trained in the Soviet Union, not far from Moscow. And the Treaty so, of Apollo and others that mm -hmm. were in the 1920s, yeah. And so... Uh, German Air Force officers in particular, there was sort of a strong attachment to the Soviets. And, and, and Germany it, itself, you know, there were some people in Germany who really favored capitalism, but, you know, it was a more sort of centrist, socialist-orientated company that, or a country than, than the U.S. was, of course. So it wasn't such a huge leap for them to think, you know, maybe uh, a deal with the Soviets wouldn't be such a bad option. So let's, let's move back to Dulles, because this is really about Dulles trying to establish relationships with those within the resistance. And he met some roadblocks. And I think one of the more interesting ones for those that hold Dulles up as this, you know, greatest ever spy master was he was often wrong <laughs> in a lot of the assessments that he sent back. Mm -hmm. He he got as much right as he did wrong. And things like, you know, right after or right before a German large scale offensive in the East, he said the Germans are done yeah. doing large scale offensive. And so he's, he's, his track record is not great. Yeah. yeah. He, d he definitely comes across as being pretty gullible, especially soon after he got there. And I think partly he was very ambitious, and he wanted to prove to Washington that he knew what was going on. But he did pass a lot of bogus things through. At one point, he got a transmission from William Donovan at the OSS, said, you know, just for your information, the War Department is discounting everything you're sending 100%. <laughs> and Dulles kind of brushed it aside and said, I know my, my sources are good. And, and Donovan said, yeah, we know your sources are good. It will be fine. Uh, but he did have a tendency to get it wrong on occasions. Partly, it's, you know, it's, it was a plus and a minus for him. In World War One, he had been in the American diplomatic corps and had been in Bern, actually. And it's a story that he often told during his days in the CIA that he received a phone call one Sunday afternoon 
somebody he didn't know, said, I've got to meet an American diplomat urgently. Now, Dulles loved two things, tennis and girls. And that afternoon, he had a tennis date with an attractive young lady. <laughs> and he told the, um, the guy on the phone, you know, come back tomorrow. I'm busy. Yeah. And it turned out that that caller was Vladimir Lenin. Um, I don't know how he ever figured that out, but anyway, that transpired. And Dulles, the lesson that he took from that was you got to talk to everybody right. all the time. And so even some of Dulles's people that he was on really good terms with said that he turned his his headquarters in this building on the Herengasse in Bern into just like a revolving door. Uh, um, central were, of just yeah, information yeah. coming in. And he paid for a lot, you know, he paid cash yeah. and he probably got sold a lot of junk information and he just wasn't sophisticated enough to be able to separate what was fact from fiction. Well, and, and the one thing that the British didn't like, and they were another major roadblock to Dulles, was they didn't think what he was doing was worthwhile, was this exact fact that he would listen to anything, he paid money for information, he wasn't doing it the old-fashioned way, the rules that everybody knows. Of course, the Americans don't really know the rules. We just created this intelligence yeah, agency yeah, yeah. out of scratch. And, you know, the British, there's report after report where the British just completely disregard what Dulles is doing. There was a lot of jealousy on the part, I don't know if jealousy is the right word, but they didn't like Dulles from the start. Um, the MI6 had put together a pretty good network in Switzerland already, and along, you know, and it was all finely delicate um, based on years of relationship building, and in comes the cowboy. <laughs> and I say he's got a lot of money, and they were really resentful that he was just going to come in and mess up their own contacts. They were sort of nervous about sharing information with them because God knows where it would end up. And remember, Dulles's codes were not particularly sophisticated, right. and the Germans were very early on. They were able to intercept and break some of his transmissions. So there was a lot of nervousness on the part of the Brits, who had been doing espionage for a long time. And the Americans, you know, between the wars, did almost nothing. Right. And, you know, Pearl Harbor, we got caught with our pants down. It didn't <laughs> help that one of the top British members of MI6 happened to be somebody who was working directly for the Soviets and had something, uh, had a dog in the fight to try to discredit Dulles mm -hmm. as much as he could. And of course, we're talking about Kim Philby in this case, mm -hmm. who wrote a lot of these reports about Dulles. Yep. And on Philby was able to figure out pretty early because he could read um, the American transmissions. Um, and he saw pretty early that Dulles was expressing a hostile attitude towards the Soviets. And early in the war, Dulles was saying, you know, these guys, the, the Russians are going to come in and they're going to throw their weight around and we got to be careful of them. And Philby got these and he passed them on to Moscow. And Moscow went back to Philby and said, this, this guy Dulles is a troublemaker. Um, you should try and find a way to discredit him. And so Philby made a point of questioning Dulles's contacts. And the Americans in the OSS in Washington really kind of looked to MI6 frequently for guidance. Right. So when MI6, you know, sent a little note over saying, you know, we don't really trust your man in Switzerland, <laughs> it found a receptive audience in, in the U.S. Um, and it's, it's hard to say to what extent that was a result of Philby. I mean, it was something that Philby talked about after the war, but yeah. it certainly didn't help. But Dulles did have a major asset on the ground in Switzerland, and this is Mary Bancroft. Can you talk a little bit about who she is? 
I was so happy when I was doing research for the book and trying to decide what book I wanted to do, and I came across Mary Bancroft, and that was just eureka. Uh, she was born to a um, kind of a patrician family like Dulles was. Her dad had been publisher of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, she had uh, married an American figure skating champion who competed in the 1928 Olympics, but she left him when she developed what she openly described as a purely physical, she had a purely physical attraction for another man. And she, she really liked the fellas. <laughs> um, she ended up moving to uh, Switzerland when she met a Swiss businessman who she admitted she didn't love, but he told her a story that he was part Turkish. And it was totally a lie to get Mary's attention. She kind of loved the danger and adventure of uh, hooking up with this Turkish guy. And so they got married, and she moved to Switzerland. And she had a very outgoing, um, assertive personality. She was very comfortable in her own skin. And she met a lot of people very quickly in Switzerland, um, including Carl Jung, the psychiatrist who actually became a, a contact for Dulles throughout right. the war because he had his own sources into what was happening. Well, in, and he injury. did a psych profile of yeah, Hitler, uh, too. Yeah, Hitler, in which he said he would Hitler would probably kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jung was right about that one. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, Mary met a lot of good, important people along the way. And for me, as somebody who was writing about it, she wrote an autobiography. She left material behind at Radcliffe. So she really kind of spelled out what she was doing, working for Dulles, about their relationship. And she didn't try to hide anything. I mean, she talked about some of their, what she called their dalliances, <laughs> um, uh, you know, from details of their affair. Uh, um, so she was a, a great person for me as a writer, and then she became really an integral part of Dulles's team. They talked every day, and then, of course, uh, she developed a close working relationship with uh, Gazavius. And it being kind of his minder for, yeah. for a lot yeah. of the war. It says a lot about Dulles, yeah. maybe not in a, a flattering way, that uh, Dulles wanted to learn about this German Abwehr agent, Gazavius, and he knew that Gazavius wanted to publish an autobiography as soon after the war as possible. And Dulles was really anxious to learn what was in that autobiography and figured he could learn a lot about Gazavius from it. So he assigned Mary, you know, go work with him, help him translate it, help him write it. And Gazavius was more than happy to have um, Mary work on it with him. And they kind of, she kind of dances around whether they had a relationship. They certainly were attracted to each mm -hmm. other. I don't know what came of it. I've seen it written many places that they had an affair. I, I didn't see that from her side right. anyway, specifically spelled out. But um, so sh she was actually quite helpful for him. I told you the last two weeks about our newest sponsor, Audible. Audible.com is the premier provider of digital audiobooks. It has over 180,000 titles to choose from in every genre. Thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, and more. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices for listening anytime, anywhere. Now for us, the listeners of SpyCast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And I've told you this before, we don't just accept anyone as a sponsor here at SpyCast. There have been plenty of companies we've turned away. I want to be sure it's right for who we are as a podcast, and most importantly, that it's something you, the listener, might care about. So I checked out the books available on Audible, and they have tons of spy-related books. I gave you a partial list the last two weeks, everything from Michael Hayden to Clint Emerson to Malcolm Nance to John LeCarre. It's likely if you've heard it here on SpyCast, you can find it there. 
And if you like Malcolm Nance, you can also find Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm X, and Letters to Malcolm by C.S. Lewis, all on Audible. So to get a free audio download and a 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com spy. Again, over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com spy. Let's talk about Dulles' attempts to end the war, because I think that's a, a, a role he played that doesn't necessarily get the press that maybe it deserves. And this is mainly in Italy. We're talking about the Italian negotiations, which was called Operation Sunrise. What's, what's interesting to me is the emphasis the Americans placed on getting the Germans to surrender in northern Italy was completely fabricated information from the Nazis. Complete Nazi propaganda, leaked blueprints, disinformation, all these things insinuating that this area of northern Italy was going to be like the last stand. <coughs> it's, it's really one of the great hidden stories of the war. I mean, there's been a book or two about it. But in that latter part of 1944, the Americans convinced themselves. And senior American officers have come out and said, yeah, we believed it, hook, line, and sinker that the Germans were going to make a final, last Wagnerian stand in the Austrian Alps and the Italian Alps. And they had intelligence that supported this. Dulles himself supported. He did some intelligence. He kind of backed away at the last minute, but there was a, a real conviction that the Germans were building tunnels and caves with air conditioning, and they were building armaments factories, and they were stockpiling food, and there were eyewitnesses who said they saw trainloads of nice furniture belonging to senior Nazis that was going to be stored in these caves. Um, there was even a, a special um, commando unit the Germans were supposed to be training called the werewolves, which I love that. So that's yeah. a great commando name. Uh, um, and it really was not true. And Goebbels was very clever. He heard about it. He heard that the Americans thought this. And at first he told German journalists, don't report anything about that. Let's keep quiet. And then the Germans figured out oh, maybe we can turn this to our advantage. Mm -hmm. And so they started leaking stories, as you say, and blueprints. And it's, in short order, it was turning up in the American mainstream media, <laughs> um, the preparations that the Germans were making to stand there. And Eisenhower talked about it. They were worried the Germans could hold on in the mountains for maybe two years after the war ended. And that would have been really bad. The Americans were keen to get turn their attention to the Japanese, and they knew the the relationship with the Soviet Union was a bit precarious, and they wanted to tie off Europe uh, nice and tidy mm -hmm. and didn't want that uh, to happen. And in the end, it was grossly, grossly exaggerated, that fear. But you can see why they do it, because any way to force the Americans to deploy resources, or even, even if it comes down to intelligence resources, to try to discover yeah. whether this is true or not is a win for the Germans. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there were great, some of the great stories, I didn't put them in the book, but of the Americans sending these, you know, the OSS sending parachute teams into the Austrian Alps. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many books and movies and mm -hmm. stuff. But these guys going, and they would be parachuted into the Alps, and they would stay in a farmhouse, and they were moving around trying to figure out what the Germans were up to there and radioing it back um, to Switzerland or to London. Um, Dulles worked really closely with an ex-Austrian ex um, 
soldier who made who was of Austrian uh, heritage, and he made several trips into Austria to kind of scout this out and come back. Um, so it was a real it was a real fear, and they spent like you say they spent a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of it. Let me move on to after the war ends because I think there's an interesting story here as well that could have some modern day applications. Uh, maybe people have seen the good German or understood the whole idea of like Operation Paperclip or the U.S. space program involving Werner von Braun, the idea of rehabilitating those that we consider not as Nazi mm-hmm. as others. What was interesting was how difficult this was to do because even those who plotted against Hitler weren't fully trusted by the West. Um, that That's amazing to me. I mean, I've heard the story before, but you really dive into it at a level that I haven't seen a lot of other places. But these you have a whole book about these guys, their entire career thinking about ways to kill Hitler yeah. or get rid of the Nazis. And at the end of the war, they can't get a job because we don't yeah. trust them. Yeah. Edward Schulte, who was one of Dulles's contacts, he was a German businessman. And he was among the first, if not the first, to learn about the, um, the final solution. He had, he had an office uh, um, near a concentration camp and was able to see what was going on there. And he got to Switzerland and was able to get it out to Jewish contacts in Switzerland who got it to the U.S. I mean, and he worked with Dulles throughout the war. He nearly, nearly got caught. Um, one of Dulles's men was able to save him. And Dulles wanted to place him in a very senior position in the um, uh, occupation government after the war, and you know maybe as economics minister or something. But he had once received some kind of award from from the Nazis, and he was as anti-Nazi as they came. And so, you know, sorry, pal, there's no job for you here. And he was quite bitter about the way that the Americans treated him. Uh, um, but, you know, and there's similar stories all over the place. Well, and the trouble you run into is that daily life in Germany at this point was absolutely atrocious. We had bombed them back to the Stone Age in many considerations. Mm-hmm. And you have an interesting stat in here that more than half the babies born in the summer of 1945 died as infants. And that the idea that before the war and during the war, if you were going to be a professional, if you're going to be high level, like running a power plant or running a factory, you had to belong to the Nazi party, yep. which meant that if you eliminated anybody who was even remotely associated with the Nazis after the war, you have nobody qualified to do anything. And the, the Germans called them the Moose Nazis, like the must Nazis. They had to join for their career or whatever they did. And the American... Americans spent a lot of time in the closing parts of the war trying to decide how, uh, what level of denazification um, we should aim for. I mean, they realized they didn't want Nazis roaming around Germany. And they ended up, there was a lot of anger in the U.S., um, particularly from some Jewish groups, and they wanted a very strict interpretation. And anybody who had been associated with the Nazis really had a, a almost impossible, it was almost impossible for them to land a job in the occupation government. Uh, it was something that Dulles very much opposed. He was, his primary concern all the way was we got to get Germany stable and politically and economically. That's, that's the overall goal, not denazification. Right. And so he spent a lot of time trying to 
help people navigate that system. I mean, he once said that, um, you know, you can't even run the railroads in Germany without ex-Nazis because they were right. so, I, th I think members of the Nazi party, it wasn't that extensive. I think it was about 10% of the population, if I remember right, but there was a lot of sort of associated groups uh, um, and they were the people who were trained up to run the bureaucracy, the things that, the jobs that Dulles felt were most important. And that you create a power vacuum that the communists are able to, come in and I mean that's the the crux of the Marshall Plan after the war was to rebuild Germany so that the, so the commies won't come in and, and mm -hmm. convince you that I think Dulles saw that before a lot of other people yeah um, and, and we have a lot of Iraq war veterans who are listeners and certainly of the podcast and this has to sound very familiar I, I immediately that's thought of an analogy I've thought of it before the debathification mm -hmm. of Iraq afterwards and if you wanted to be a high-level Politician, if you want to be a high-level person who ran a factory or ran a power plant, you had to belong to the Bath Party. Yeah, and we had the rule right afterwards that if you were any way, shape, or form mm -hmm. associated with the Bath, you had you couldn't do anything. Yeah, and so a power vacuum is. It sounds a lot. I, not comparing the Nazis to the Baths. Please don't write me mean letters <laughs> about that. I'm saying our our very short-sighted policy and being so black and white when it came to this. Um, seems to be very analogous mm -hmm. to what we saw in Iraq. But a lot of sort of the American post-war occupation policy was driven by the Treasury Secretary, which maybe not, you wouldn't think of that position as necessarily right. being the one that would control it, but um, Henry Morgenthau was very tight to, with Roosevelt. He had his problems with Truman, but he was very tight with Roosevelt, and he was able to exert a, a strong voice in what sort of, uh, you know, in, in the occupation, and he was very opposed to anything to do with the Nazis. Um, and so they, he was able, because of his role in the Treasury, he was able to exert a particularly strong influence in the German financial system. Mm -hmm. And so he had people who had worked in the Treasury Department who were sort of seconded to the army, this is after the war, who were uh, very aggressively pursued German bankers and financiers um, who had been Nazis, or even ones that maybe had been um, important you know, board members of German banks. There was one board member of Deutsche Bank, for example, um, which had financed uh, um, a lot of Germany's war efforts, and he was, he was hunted down. And they, they formed, I think they, they call them these flying squads, and they would descend on a bank and look at all the materials and, um, you know, arrest uh, um, a lot of people. So it probably, I think it was the, the sort of the anti-Nazi policy was most aggressively pursued in the financial and banking sector, which you know, is key for rebuilding an economy. Well, I mean, especially at that point where... It wasn't just about rebuilding the German economy. It was rebuilding markets for American goods. Yep. Yep. You know, when you're going from Chrysler plants building tanks back to building cars, if you have a Europe that can't buy anything, that hurts the United well, States. Well, and as if much. you want to be really cynical as well, you know, American companies um, such as Adam Opel, um, which is now in the news, which was just bought by a French car company, but, you know, there were American uh, um, business and financial interests in Germany as well. We'd like to thank Movement Watches and Audible for their continued support. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com spy. And you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com spycast. And don't forget to take our quick survey. Go to podcast.study. I promise if enough of you do the survey, I'll stop talking about it. So Scott Miller, a former correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, is author of two books. I recommend both of them. His first was The President and Assassin. McKinley, Terror, and Empire of the Dawn of American Century, and now 
Agent 110, an American spy master in the German resistance in World War II. It is, we're taping this the day it comes out, but by the time you hear it, it will have just come out. It is an exceptional book. Uh, look, there's a, there's a million books on Dulles, but this really takes the Dulles story from a very different perspective. Kind of puts you in the shoes of Dulles to try to understand the way the German resistance was viewed by the OSS and American intelligence. It's highly recommended. Scott, thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.